Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, you're listening to New Books in History. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. Today I have a very special episode in which I'll be speaking to Jeffrey Byrne about his brilliant book called Mecca of Revolution, Algeria, Decolonization, and the Third World Order. It was published by Oxford University Press in 2016 and was reissued in paperback just last year. It's a special episode because... Jeff is a mentor of mine. I took a class with him all the way back in the fourth year of my undergraduate, and then during my MA, he was one of my thesis advisors. And so Jeff has played a sizable role in my own career and interests. But it's also a special episode because we're talking about his award-winning book, Mecca of Revolution. It places Algeria at the center of so many of the 20th century's international dynamics. Decolonization, the Cold War, detente, third worldism, the non-aligned movement, and several other dynamics. It challenges common understandings of where international history took place and who its protagonists were. The book begins with an international reading of the Algerian War of Independence, which took place between 1954 and 1962, and then traces how Algerian revolutionaries, upon securing independence from France, built up a powerful, internationally connected post-colonial state in the 1960s and 70s. The book is filled with many innovative arguments that we just had to discuss, and so our conversation is on the longer side. But hopefully you'll find it worthwhile. I know I did. I'm speaking with Jeff Byrne about his book, Mecca of Revolution, Algeria, Decolonization, and the Third World Order. Thanks for being on the show, Jeff. Thanks very much for having me. Absolutely. And um, we should probably give our audience uh, a, just a slight disclaimer um, or m- perhaps conflict of interest. Um, you used <laughs> to be my uh, one of my advisors um, when I was doing my MA at UBC. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. rank corruption here, <laughs> which is my style. Yeah, great. Um, so uh, just to begin our conversation, what drew you to becoming an international historian? Well, I think what ultimately really drove me to my intellectual historical curiosities. When I think back about it, I didn't have a plan, but it actually turned out there was quite a degree of consistency with the things, many of the things I studied at at the undergraduate level. Um, I was, uh, because I was sort of a teenager in the 1990s, I went to university in the late 90s, uh, and coming from Ireland on the one hand, um, and also sort of being situated between the, the UK and, and the US and how much of a sort of impression politics there makes on you. And it was just very much this era of the sort of the post-Cold War era, um, this you know, these strong narratives of sort of a post-ideological age and centrism and the, the, the whole the sort of the mainstream political narrative being that there was, there was no... Um, there was no sort of real ideological debate to be had anymore. The left, revolutionaries, communism, that was all 
um, you know, discredited nonsense. Um, and I think combined with that is, is sort of being in Ireland as well. There, there's an element of that because Irish politics are, are a bit funny in the sense that the, the two largest parties, or traditionally at any rate, the, the most uh, powerful political parties, are ideologically actually very similar. And the reason why there's two of them sort of goes back to the, the civil war uh, just after Irish independence and sort of more a sort of, you know, a schism than a sort of an ideological uh, uh, differentiation on the spectrum. Um, and so um, I, I think that just always made me very curious in uh, curious about sort of revolutionary ideologies. I was drawn into Russian history as an undergraduate. I took quite a few classes and sort of directed studies in, in Russian history, getting interested in the Soviet Union and so on. And um, it's something that only occurred to me afterwards when I was already in graduate school. But I, my undergraduate thesis, dissertation essay, senior essay uh, in my last year was actually on the French Communist Party in the early 20s and its uh, ties to the, the Bolsheviks, which ended up being, at least in many thematical ways, extremely similar to uh, my later interests in graduate school, although that only occurred to me after the fact. Hmm. Great. Um, so uh, that's, that's really fascinating. It seems like you've always been interested in uh, the question of ideology and its relationship to, um, to revolution. Um, and it's something that we'll be talking about a lot today. Um, so your book is a history of Algerian decolonization and state building, um, but it's also a history of um, South-South internationalism. Um, can you share with listeners what you um, uh, sought to accomplish when you um, set out to do this project? When I set out to do the project, well, I should say that when I, I set out to do the project, I wasn't even necessarily intending to do a because uh, it was my doctoral dissertation and then uh, evolved into the into the book. Uh, but when I first started on the project, it was actually just for my uh, master's degree, my master's thesis. I was studying at the London School of Economics. And so I wasn't even thinking in terms of, of a long-term uh, plan. I was take, I took a course with uh, Arne Westad that was on um, revolutions in the third world and, and the Cold War in the third world. And it was, the course was essentially um, essentially his book, Global Cold War, that came out uh, shortly after that. Um, and I found that very, very interesting material. The stuff we were we were reading in that class is very interesting. Um, and thematically, it was very much on uh, the, the kind of topics I was interested in, but also looking at parts of the world that I wouldn't say I wasn't, I wasn't not interested in them, but they weren't areas that I had sort of um, uh uh, necessarily be drawn to or even necessarily uh, visited much at that point in time. I had thought that I would do uh, something about the Soviet Union or maybe Soviet uh, involvement in, in the developing world for my dissertation. But I did this, uh, I sort of wrote this master's thesis thinking, well, it seems like an interesting, it was on sort of Algerian foreign policy after independence and its ties to revolutionary movements. And I was just thinking that it was a thing that was, you know, I'd be working on it for a few months. I'd learn about a place that I didn't know very much about. I was drawn to it by uh, Pierre Glehese's book, Conflicting Missions, that was on Cuban involvement in, in Africa. And I had a chapter on mm -hmm. uh, Cuban ties to Algeria. That was what first got me interested in the topic. And uh, Arnie thought it had potential as a, as a subject for a doctoral dissertation and um, uh, encouraged me to, to, to go on and do that at LSE with him, which I did. Um, so to a certain extent, I sort of got into it. Um, I was sort of, I was deep into the project, committed to the project, 
before sort of even thinking about as well, what am I trying to get out of this multi-year project? Uh, I do remember thinking clearly once I was sort of in the early stages of the, of the PhD that I wanted is to, uh, if someone was reading it, to feel on the one hand that I had proven that if you are interested in sort of contemporary late 20th century international affairs, the history of, of international affairs, then Algeria is important to know about. I wanted to show that Algeria was relevant to people who perhaps might not necessarily have thought of themselves interested in Algeria, but thematically interested in the sort of broad subject matter. Uh, and at the same time, I wanted people who knew Algeria or sort of North African history to recognize the country in, in what I was writing. Um, and I, I wanted it to sort of be a, a, an international history focused on a particular place or international or global history focused on a particular place, a particular country that um, was uh, sort of true to both. That was, that was a good history of Algeria and a good history of international and, and, and global dynamics. Then I think as, as I was getting more into this, uh, sort of more revising it for the, for the book and thinking about what is you know, what it all means, what it means to me, what, what it means to the field. I, I was, in a sense, the sort of the focus on, on South-South connections uh, and sort of global and international history that's not primarily sort of told from oriented around the, sort of the traditional great powers in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, in a sense, that came naturally out of, out of the material. I just felt like that was true to the history. I did know that I didn't I didn't want to do a sort of a history of Algeria told largely from the French perspective or or that that there's some sort of a regardless of the sources you're using that there's a sort of default um that the Algeria history is not an offshoot of French history and I think perhaps that's where being Irish and sort of having that um wasn't something that occurred to me beforehand but there's certainly parallels between Algeria's relationship with France and Ireland's relationship with with the UK and then in terms of it being very oriented around relations with other countries and movements and people and groups and political forces uh, and ideas that are largely coming from the Southern Hemisphere or, or the Third World. Um, that's important to me, but it was also just, I think, uh, a accurate reflection of, of the sources and the history and what I was mm -hmm. getting from the Algerian side of things. Yeah, so th that's something that I, I would love to uh, hear more about, just the sources. Um, you know, this book is based off of um, really just like a tremendous amount of archival research, um, you know, um, archives uh, from really around the world, um, uh, like many, many continents. Uh, and in those archives, uh, um, you were really able to gather information that other researchers were just unable to find. Um, and I, so I, I would love to hear more about, um, like, your experience with these archives, um, uh, you know, like what were some of the archival obstacles that you faced and how did you, the historian, overcome them? I, I was writing a history of Algeria. It initially started out actually when I, when I started the, the, the dissertation, the, the PhD, the, um, the initial conception of the book was looking at Algerian foreign policy after independence, sort of Algerian foreign policy in the 60s um, with a particular, maybe sort of external relations is a better term because I, I certainly was especially interested in perhaps not necessarily conventional foreign policy, but relations with other national liberation movements and revolutionary groups uh, and this kind of thing. 
Um, and then as, as it developed, I ended up sort of um, talking a lot as well about the sort of pre-independence, uh, um, independence struggle in, in Algeria, uh, as well as the, the post-62, post-62 period. Um, and so I knew starting out that I very much wanted to be able to use Algerian sources, Algerian archives, especially as I was thinking at, at, at the outset that I was focused on post-1962, after independence from France, at uh, the end of the, this, this huge war, that, uh, and very much interested in foreign policy type things, that ideally I could look at the records of Algeria's foreign ministry or other sort of government bureaucracies or, or that kind of thing. The same way one would do if you were writing uh, something about U.S. relations with the world, say, or, or British relations with the world, you trundle off to the, the National Archives and look at the State Department uh, records and, and that kind of thing um, that they'll let you see. Um, no one had been able to see that material before that I was aware of. Um, the, the one encouraging precedent was uh, Matt Connolly's book, which had come out a few years prior to, mm-hmm. to, prior to me starting the, the dissertation. That was 2002, perhaps. That was on the, the Algerian War of Independence um, uh, from 1954 to 1962. And he had, had um, used, he'd gotten um, to see some uh, Algerian sources from the Algerian archives um, uh, that were specifically of the the FLN, the Front de Liberation Nationale, the, the independence uh, movement from 54 to 62. So that was encouraging. I wanted to look at sort of post-62, um, but I, I thought, well, there's um, certainly seems that there's um, it, it's not sort of totally unprecedented. Um, but the people I asked uh, before I went the first time were not terribly encouraging and <laughs> thought that when I sort of asked uh, people who who'd worked on Algeria and had sort of written books in Algeria and sort of essentially said it was a lost cause but uh, I went and um, tried anyway and I mean that was a very big focus of the my training at LSE uh, with training with Arnie Westhead in particular and, and some of his other students um, a lot of people that were working on sort of post-communist uh, countries or other, other parts of the sort of global south slash third world, uh, and was a, a strong emphasis on, on um, doing research in, in, in situ and trying to um, do this uh, sort of uh, decentered history of, of of the Cold War, as they're calling it, um, a sort of polycentric history and terms like that. So it was definitely perhaps. Such such things aren't always possible, but that was definitely a, a sort of still as a prior, priority uh, and was definitely preferable. Um, and so I, I, I put a lot of effort into it from from the from the outset, and luckily it, it panned out, and it was uh, profoundly changed the the project. The the staff at the Archive Nationale in Algeria, uh, the National Archive Centre, where I, I was asking to do a kind of project that they hadn't really worked on a project like that before. There were some, um, as you might expect, uh, sort of some hesitancy. It took a, a lot of explaining and conversations. Uh, but ultimately, they were, the, they, I felt that they ended up being quite supportive and certainly wouldn't have been possible uh, at all without uh, the support of the archive staff and the, the archives uh, administration. Mm-hmm. Do, do you have like a particular technique? Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about um, some of the PhD students that might be listening to this conversation. And I'm just wondering if you could like 
um, uh, you know, like maybe uh, um, think of like one technique that helped you um, overcome these obstacles that, um, you know, that had harried other um, uh, researchers before you? I, I think my main technique was persistence, um, uh, sort of stubbornness, uh, I, I sort of, a, a fear of, of going back to London, sort of ashamed that I, I hadn't um, gotten into the archives. I wouldn't, felt like I wouldn't <laughs> be able to hold my head high amongst uh, these other graduate students doing all sorts of amazing work uh, in, in amazing places. Um, so the, the, the fear of... Uh, mortal embarrassment i had it it, it it did take a long time i did know that i expected that well this is the thing this is the thing that hasn't um happened before they don't have people sort of dropping in every day that i'm not seeing work come out that are using these kind of sources so i felt that there, there might be political obstacles in the sense that um that uh, it might be you know, presumably a, at least a somewhat closed uh, political culture. They're not sort of, so they might sort of have a sort of a policy reluctance to let someone see these, this kind of material. I thought there might also be um, just, they might not be used to this sort of supporting this kind of uh, project. Uh, so I expected that it might take a while and I expected that the default answer for everything would be no, if in doubt. I mean, who am I? I'm just some Irish guy showing up asking to, you know, look at uh, high-level documents of state. Um, complicated by the fact, of course, that uh, many of the the people whose um, documents and sort of letters I'm asking to look at are, were at least at that time, currently uh, very senior figures still in Algerian politics, including the president and so on. Many of them had, you know, extremely long political careers. So it's only understandable that they wouldn't necessarily jump at the opportunity as soon as I showed up to, to sort of let me into see everything I wanted. Um, so I went expecting that it would take a long time and it'd be a conversation and that there'd be a conversation about sort of both policy and also um, how it might work out in, in practice. Um, and so I, I think my main asset um, was um, patience, uh, sort of willingness to stay. But they, the first visa they gave me was for uh, three months. And so I just made a point of going to the National Archives, the reading room, just about every day that they were open during those three months. Um, and while I was there, they, I was sort of looking at historical newspapers and that kind of thing that, that, were, that were useful, but um, wasn't wasn't sort of my purpose of going there, but just to be able to pass the time. And whenever the opportunity arose, I'd sort of discuss my project more with various people and sort of make an appointment to, to talk to senior administrators. Of course, they're not going to, you might have to wait a while to talk to them. They have other responsibilities. Um, and so I think um, that sort of persistence, expecting that um, all the initial answers would be no, but sort of not necessarily just uh, taking that at face value. I mean, not being rude, but uh, asking to asking to have a conversation about a thing. Um, I, I think sometimes people make the mistake of sort of you know sending emails or sending letters or, or something, and uh, then getting a negative and not very encouraging response back, and sort of leaving it at that. Yeah, uh, I, th I think okay. So um, uh, the technique would be um, time, persistence, um, and fear and shame. Apparently, um, uh, but uh, basically, um, yeah, basically but, graduate school. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In, in shame, forward, time, yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but but um, yeah, I, th- I think this archival um, uh, your arch- archival experience um, is really what enabled you to um, tell this um, very international story that's like centered in a place that we actually don't know very much about. Um, and so um, no, so I, I think that um, uh, like whatever you did in the archives, uh, um, you know, I, I thank you for it. Um, so um, getting into the book itself now. Um, one of the uh, the key theses of your book relates to ideology, or um, rather lack thereof, um, among the Algerian revolutionaries. Um, instead of a coherent and fully articulated ideology, um, uh, they preferred um, uh, thinking more about like the practice of revolution or the technique of revolution. Um, and so... Um, uh, uh, this meant that they were really borrowing from uh, eclectic sources. Uh, you know, in the, the first bit of your book, you talk about how um, they, they borrowed from Woodrow Wilson and Lenin um, in their approach to revolution and state making. Can you walk listeners um, uh, through this argument uh, and, uh, and how they, yeah, how, how they were thinking about Wilson and Lenin together? Yeah, well, it's, I wouldn't say that's the, uh, Algerian revolution um, lacked uh, an ideology so much as um, the the particular argument uh, I'm making uh, that you're referring to there is um, there was I think there's a deliberate sort of tactical choice uh, in the early stages of uh, and I should say when I say Algerian revolution um, um, that I might I might use it in two different terms because in uh, two different senses because on the one hand you have 1954 to 1962 is the actual war of independence or the uh, uh, Algerian Revolution, this huge uh, war of, of national liberation uh, from France. Um, but I, I also sort of talk about the Algerian Revolution uh, in terms of continuing beyond 1962 and the sort of uh, revolutionary goals and socialist goals and sort of of the of the independent Algerian state and its efforts to support national liberation movements elsewhere and so on. Um, but um, I'm looking at all of the um the the minutes of of you know the higher ranks of the of the FLN the national liberation movement from from 54 to 62 and you can see these very interesting debates about um uh, sort of policy and revolutionary strategy and ideology going on and one of the things that struck me was um why so much of this material was was really interesting because of course it was almost like a, a sort of a, a graduate seminar on this subject mm. because of course if you actually go and look at them it's the revolution is mostly um um uh sort of at least it's sort of uh um sort of leadership cadres and sort of uh, the sort of political officers and those kind of things many of them really are sort of graduate students or, or they're equivalent of that age some of them leave university studies to join the FLN to join the revolution sort of young people who are 22 23 years old maybe they sort of you know get a law degree or even leave law school and are sort of sent off to be the the, the FLN's envoy or, or sort of diplomat uh, uh, so in places like India or the New York uh, and the UN for that matter or, or Europe. And um, so they, uh, you have a lot of sort of, uh, I think the, the quality that they, they felt reading some of these these minutes, the, the minutes of these high-level conversations they'll be having about sort of what's our strategy, what are our goals, what's our ideology. And it's really interesting because it's it's these sort of, in some ways, these sort of basic fundamental 
questions of principle about what's the revolution stand for, what's it about, what's 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 the issue with the Algerian people, why should the revolution exist? But it also has to be very pragmatic because the revolution is underway. There's there's uh, uh, you know there's 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 guerrilla fighters, there's mujahideen fighting the hills, and the French are sort of killing them and arresting them as quickly as they can, and the, the whole uh, country's plunged into war. So there's a sort of uh, there's, there's a sort of, on the one hand, a conversation about basic principles, on the other hand, uh, pragmatic and very urgent, um, uh, and in human terms, like, or very urgent uh, uh, realities are imposing themselves and sort of the, the, the most greatest uh, human stakes uh, are at play. Um, and there was uh, there's an interesting early decision made to, uh, indeed, which is sort of behind the the, the, the genesis of the, of the FLN itself in '54, to in a sense table deep philosophical discussions about what what's the revolution about, what's the Algerian national identity about, sort of how important is religion to it, how important is Islam to it, how important is sort of different sort of uh, uh, linguistic uh, and sort of sub-region, sort of sub-national uh, linguistic or cultural identities, or is it explicitly socialist or not? So, in a sense, um, what the defining trait of the because there were other, um, there was a very active political uh, uh, scene uh, of many different in Algeria before 1954, before the FLN was created, um, expressing discontent with the the. the the colonial status quo in, in many different respects. And in a sense, would actually differentiate the FLN. And they were quite explicit about this, its founders at the beginning, that the reason how they justified creating this new entity when different political parties and movements already existed was that they said that they were explicitly about the means, about action, rather than mm-hmm. philosophy and ideas and identity and uh, sort of defining things and, and doctrinal debates, and they said that's that's what distinguishes us from the politicians who they're sort of trying to shove to the side, and they do shove to the side successfully. Uh, it's not about the re- what defines our revolution. What defines a revolutionary is not sort of what you think or what your goals are, because many of the politicians that they were supplanting were themselves calling for independence and so on and so forth. Said what this what defines a revolution is not the goals, but what is actions, what a revolution is willing to do, namely to fight, to risk their own life, to um, sacrifice their own life if need be, to take other lives, to begin this armed revolt. And they, they essentially said, we'll just, we can argue about, you know, what the revolution means forever and never get on with anything. We'll just be another bunch of, you know, sort of uh, revolutionaries talking big talk in cafes, but never actually undertaking the revolution. Um, and so that was a, a a tactical decision that was a incredibly consequential for all sorts of reasons. Ended up being extremely successful because they completely transformed the Algerian political landscape. The revolution does take off. Um, uh, the other political figures who had pre-existed in Algeria basically had to either join within a year or two, within two years, basically, the political landscape was completely changed. Uh, all the other sort of political figures had either joined the FLN or being shoved to the side or, or eliminated. Um, so that decision to just sort of take action uh, and to focus on the, the, the methods of revolution rather than the, the theory of it uh, was deliberate uh, and intentional and at least in the short term, very successful. Um, and uh, some of those methods you're talking about, uh, so so I... I 
the, the point I make in uh, the first uh, first two chapters, I suppose, of the book are, uh, or one of the points anyway, is that if you're looking at the, the influence of sort of uh, things like uh, sort of Wilsonian internationalism was important, the influence of sort of Bolshevism, um, uh, Leninism and Maoism, those sort of communist uh, revolutionary influences, those were also important. Um, but much more so, I think, about the, 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 the sort of the practical aspects of those different uh, revolutionary ideas. Uh, and I argue that the FLN, in a sense, sort of took the, the, the practices of Wilsonian diplomacy. And they had this, uh, it's particularly famous uh, amongst revolutionary movements, the FLN, for sort of pioneering this extremely uh, um, uh, uh, well-developed uh, sort of political diplomatic wing that sort of um, conducts public relations campaigns globally and brings attention to the Algerian uh, uh, cause and tries to gain sympathy for it internationally and um, you know becomes so successful that basically no no revolutionary or political or nationalist movement or liberation movement uh, uh, that comes afterwards up until the up to the the present day to basically all try to do the same thing it seems um, obvious that you need to do that now because it's so successful uh, and I think that's sort of it's taking borrowing a lot from the sort of Wilsonian sort of American um, uh, message for a world based on um, uh, uh, sort of equality between nations and sort of, uh, uh, sort of that, that sort of new era of, of diplomacy, new era of, of international affairs. Um, and at the same time, there's, but it's, it's, it's married to this uh, sort of more, in some respects, sort of Bolshevik or Maoist um, revolutionary uh, underground organization that has uh, has guerrilla fighters, that has terrorist wings, that is trying to create sort of propaganda apparata, um, that is using the sort of cell techniques of, of underground mobilization organization and, and politicization um, that um, uh, the communist world has, has proven, um, at least in terms of the methodologies of political mobilization, are extremely uh, effective to the point that you you can you, if you're looking at the minutes of uh, of sort of Algerian uh, nationalist figures, they're you know, they're taking documents. They'll take um, sort of um, Soviet uh, communist uh, um, uh, documents and materials and sort of uh, sort of revolutionary uh, kind of using it as a as a revolutionary instruction guide. And they'll often go through and sort of at least in the early years just kind of copy many of the same language wholesale and put it into some of their own documents and their own material to train their own political commissars and so on. But they'll, they'll excise overtly ideological terminology. Sort of they'll, they'll get rid of references to say the proletariat and they'll just replace it with the nation and that kind of thing. So it's very, very explicitly um, and, and literally about taking the praxis of revolution and taking whatever praxis has a, has a demonstrated record of success. Um, uh, taking that, but not necessarily, at least in theory, not necessarily taking on board all of the, the sort of ideological baggage uh, uh, or context that, that can come with these different examples that they're sort of borrowing from and, and putting together. Um, I, I then argue that, that there's, this is very successful in the short term, but it's also, um, I think it has long-term consequences that are, are complicated and perhaps still um, linger in Algeria today, that this sort of sense of a, a sort of a de deliberate effort to sort of um, depoliticize uh, 
the nation and the revolution and the, and political uh, identity, uh, I think, kind of creates a lingering sense of, of, of ideological crisis or a sort of identity crisis uh, sort of uh, feeds into that in, in the longer term. And there's a deliberate search when you look by the early 60s, the latter stages of the, the war of independence, on into, on into the, the post-independence period, you'll see, uh, you can see the sort of similar conversations going on where they're now saying, we need to, we have an ideological deficit that we, we're not ideological enough. We need to be more ideological. There's amongst various sort of leading elements in the, the Algerian political and intellectual scene, um, uh, which I think is an interesting dimension. It's also something which um, I'm more aware of uh, now, perhaps, is that uh, is I wouldn't say a universal phenomenon, but a very widespread phenomenon across much of the colonial and post-colonial world in the sort of 40s, 50s, and 60s. I'm struck by how often, um, if I'm reading things, even especially if sort of reading for reading for teaching, and you might be reading about areas that I knew less about and I often find people many coming from many different kinds of sort of political groups and different elements of different places on the political spectrum but around that same general era making the same case saying well, we need to prioritize action over sort of philosophizing and this sort of this sense of impatience the the importance of praxis the importance of action explicitly defining revolution as something that a person does not as uh, that the revolution is, distinct, is distinguished by those the actions that people are willing to take rather than the cause in whose name they take those actions. So this, this question of uh, this like strategic choice um, made by um, the Algerians um, to sort of issue um, uh, yeah, doctrinal debates and privilege, um, um, sort of like the, the practice of state making, um, had consequences um, internationally. And um, one of those is the Algerians um, basically became friends with um, a surprisingly um, ideologically diverse um, uh, coterie of allies, um, you know, uh, from uh, around the world, different ideologies, different state-making projects, um, uh, different anti-colonial projects. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and this is essentially the title of your book, uh, you know, like um, Algiers became uh, a mecca of revolution. And so, uh, how how did this happen? How did these um, uh, th- this this approach to ideology and practice um, uh, lead to Algiers becoming um, this site of um, so much revolutionary and confusing energy? That's the that's the topic that really brought me to the to the subject and to the the project in the first place. That uh, Algeria and Algiers, perhaps uh, uh, in particular, um, really emerges. After independence, in fact, even before independence, while the, while the war is still going on, as one of it's not the only one, but there's a, there's a few sort of places uh, around the world during this sort of this era of decolonization, and we can sort of you know get into what decolonization means uh, uh, a slightly different question, but you know the 50s, 60s, 70s, and and there's these places as huge revolutionary. Foment around the world, especially in the uh, in the southern hemisphere, the colonial world, the third world, global south, um, whatever uh, sort of frame you want to use, all sorts of different movements, anti-colonial movements, anti-colonial movements of different stripes. Some overtly socialist and Marxist, others being um, overtly anti-Marxist, uh, and so on. 
Um, and there's this whole spirit of anti-colonial internationalism, anti-colonial solidarity um, is um, that there's, there's certain places where they seem to really be the, the, these sort of networks of support and revolutionaries are sort of traveling around the world. And, and there's a few places where are sort of particularly intense uh, uh, sites where people are coming together and exchanging ideas and, and cooperating uh, and Algiers is one of those places in, in, in the 60s and 70s. Um, it becomes um, that Algiers War of Independence was extremely inspirational to um, many people in the, in the world, especially in the colonial world. Uh, at that point in time, they waged this massive war, hundreds of thousands of lives lost, ultimately gained their independence from France. France essentially so it does everything it can and in practical terms, successive French governments to try to win that war and, and hold on to Algeria, devoting massive military resources to that ultimately failed endeavor, military and political resources um, and economic. Um, and so it's it's it shows that if if the if anti-colonial revolution, if European imperialism and colonialism can be overthrown in Algeria, it can be overthrown anywhere that no situation no situation is impossible no matter how improbable success seems no matter how great the odds seem stacked against you i mean it, they the, the sort of uh, they couldn't have tried harder than they did uh, in the algerian case um and so uh, it was became an it's not the only one but it became another great example for would be revolutionaries the notion that what what seems um foolhardy, what might seem foolhardy, perhaps even suicidal, that that can, can be done. Um, and so many come, and Algerians themselves uh, received a great deal of international support um, uh, during the, the War of Independence, uh, both in terms of other countries that sort of formally diplomatically uh, supported them, which is especially sort of newly independent countries in Asia, say, uh, other Arab countries in the Middle East, the wider Middle East area, um, the sort of communist countries, the Eastern European countries, and so on, um, China, um, and also uh, so that that there's that sort of a, a formal diplomatic support that they got. Many countries sent actual munitions and material support. Uh, communist China again, uh, Yugoslavia, uh, and then sort of later on, sort of other parts of the, of the communist bloc, and countries like uh, Egypt and so on sort of gave concrete material support, but they also just took a lot of inspiration from um, the, the continuing process of decolonization that was going on around them. After all, the Algerian War of Independence begins in 1954, it isn't concluded until 1962. And what you see happening during those years is that almost the entirety of this, the continent of Africa um, becomes, um, I mean, this sounds like a terribly sort of uh, a, a, a vague abstract term, but becomes decolonized during that uh, process. Not all of it, but most of it. So there's this massive change. So many of the, the newly independent countries to the south of them in Africa, they also are gaining a lot of, uh, I guess, sort of, I think what's particularly perhaps particularly important is the sort of moral support and encouragement they get because it, it, it it's, uh, suggests that the big gamble that they've taken, that history is on their side, launching this war of national liberation, which will most of the people who begin the FLN are, are killed or captured quite quickly. Um, the life expectancy of a, of a mujahid or a sort of a, a, a guerrilla fighter 
it's not terribly long. It's it's it's, uh, but they they take this gamble that their reading of history is right, that they've read the historical moment correctly, that imperialism is over, that they just need to sort of have the courage to, you know, kick the legs out from under it. And so um, that, you know, uh, sort of other parts of, of Africa in particular are sort of gaining their independence during this period, and they're lending support to the Algerians, or at least most of them in any case, but in practical terms, the support can't be that significant, but it all sort of reinforces this, this strong, ultimately correct argument that, that that the FLN, the Algerian independence movement, represents the sort of irresistible force of history that you can't, it's foolish of the French to to try to prevent this. Uh, And so I think this sense of international solidarity, both in concrete terms and in this sort of sense of um, philosophical existential validation uh, is very strong uh, in Algeria and many other places, um, but uh, in Algeria after 62. And so they have, uh, in fact, even before the, the War of Independence is over, the FLN starts supporting other national liberation movements from other parts of, of the developing world. Um, and after 62, when they get their own independence, the Algerian state greatly extends this and gives a, a great deal of support to, to, to people coming from practically you know, many people come from Southern Africa in particular, uh, from South America, Argentina, um, uh, in fact, some coming from, from Europe as well. And as you move into the 70s, you get more coming from, from the West, people from uh, sort of uh, African-American uh, activists, um, uh, Quebecois nationalists, uh, the Irish nationalists from Northern Ireland, for that matter, uh, and this kind of thing. Um, uh, Palestinian nationalists, of course, are, are a big one, and they um, have a very um, extensive and generous and sort of, um, you know, I wouldn't say unrestrained, but sort of remarkably extensive uh, and, uh, especially in the early years, very open policy of just supporting revolutionary movements and national liberation movements that come and ask for it. And that means they'll give them training, military training, as well as political training, they'll let them open offices and conduct sort of PR, diplomatic campaigns, that they'll train their fighters in, in the Algerian army's own sort of camps, uh, that they'll give them passports, give them Algerian passports, allow them to travel around the world uh, as Algerian passport holders, send them on to other places like Communist China, um, Cairo, uh, uh, Accra and Ghana, at least in the, in the um, early mid-60s, to, to other places that are sort of, um, or Havana for that matter, other places that are that are sympathetic. And it just becomes um, this uh, amazing place where so many, the, the sheer numbers of people are, are, are relatively small. You're talking about thousands, say. Um, but that's what makes it all remarkable. So many people who end up becoming quite important in the histories of their own countries or different sort of uh, political movements, you know, pass through, um, uh, sort of rub shoulders, talk to one another, um, share notes, support one another. Uh, and so, you know, this whole concept of sort of anti-colonial solidarity, anti-colonial internationalism, that it's 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 really real. And it really is. It's not just sort of nice talk and rhetoric that it's actually practiced uh, and has uh, very long-term uh, ramifications. Um, yeah, and so uh, one of those um, sort of, uh, um, I, don't, I don't know, one of those like international projects that um, uh, Algeria really becomes involved in is uh, the non-aligned movement. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and so um, I'd, and and you have a, a really fascinating discussion of uh, non-alignment, and so I'd love for you to parse it out for our listeners. Um, you suggest that like the emergence of non-alignment was not uh, abstention from the Cold War, rather it was a strategy that weak and poor countries could pursue so they could wage the Cold War to their own advantage. Um, can you uh, kind of break this down for our listeners? Yeah. So on the one hand, I'm looking a lot at sort of these uh, relations between revolutionary movements and after independence, Algeria's relations with different revolutionary movements. On the other hand, uh, I also look a lot at Algeria's sort of more um, uh, more formal foreign policy and diplomatic actions. And if you're looking at the, the third world in that era, um, straight away you have these these entities, the non-aligned movement, Afro-Asianism, um, the Bangdung Conference, mm-hmm. and, and the sort of um, uh, the organization of African unity, say, uh, all these different sort of um, this new uh, diplomatic landscape and terminology that's that terminology that's emerging in the in the decolonizing world. And there's a lot of there's there's a lot more, I think, interest and, and attention on, on on that subject in general in the last sort of uh, 10 years or so. Uh, uh, other people working on it, I, I talked to a lot of graduate students who are sort of working on aspects of this. Um, Bangdung, the Bangdung Conference in 1954, uh, sorry, 55 gets uh, gets a lot of um, recognition these days uh, now compared to the past uh, notions of Afro-Asian solidarity. And so one of the challenges I found is um, figuring out what, what these... Um, these entities and these terms, non-alignment, Afro-Asianism, uh, sort of third worldism. So what, what do they all mean in, in practice? Um, uh, there's a lot of skeptical thought, both at the time and by scholars working after the fact that thinks that a lot of it is sort of, you know, doesn't amount to much. And there's a lot of sort of grand speeches and sort of heads of state and sort of diplomats and so on getting together and sort of making a bunch of grand statements and about um, decolonization and so on, but it doesn't uh, amount to much. Um, I, mean, I disagree with that, but one of the things I found is, uh, uh, I certainly disagree that it, it all doesn't amount to much. In fact, I think it had very significantly changed uh, the global history in the latter half of the 20th century. But um, the specific issue of non-alignment that I was looking at is that I found that um, they, the Algerians and, and many like-minded uh, uh, peers around the world that they're talking to, um, what I found looking at their conversations, say, is that they themselves are very conscious of the fact that, okay, how do we make Afro-Asianism a foreign policy? How do we make non-alignment a foreign policy? Uh, and they themselves had these discussions about, we don't want these just to be a bunch of terms that we throw around and it all sounds great. How do I, you know, well, how do I instruct my ambassadors to sort of go out and practice a non-aligned or sort of, you know, Afro-Asian um, uh, internationalist uh, uh, foreign policy? Mm. The, the, the terms are not interchangeable. Things like Afro-Asianism, non-alignment and so on, you can't, they're ju- not just, they don't mean exactly the same thing. They're often sort of thrown together rhetorically. Um, people speechifying, saying, oh, we support Afro-Asianism, we support non-alignment, we support African unity, we support Arab unity. Uh, but in practice, uh, that's, but that's 
diplomacy, that's politics, that's oratory, oratory, sorry. Uh, But behind the scenes, they themselves are saying, so what does this mean? And which is more important? I mean, I have to decide what we're working on this morning. So is Arab unity more important than African unity? Is non-alignment more important than Afro-Asianism? And and this kind of thing. Uh, And so what I found is that, um, especially in the early 60s, around the founding of the non-aligned movement uh, in 61, that it's very much a sort of that there's slightly smaller and medium-sized third world countries are sort of in the driver's seat for that, and uh, including Yugoslavia in that, uh, um, uh, sort of in this category where the movement was founded, of course. And for them, non-alignment was not this notion of um, sort of, yes, it meant sort of non-alignment in terms of independence in Cold War terms, that you weren't allied with, uh, you weren't sort of the, you know, a satellite or a puppet of sort of one of the superpowers or some other uh, great power, uh, that you were pursuing a, an independent par- foreign policy, you weren't sort of tied into one block or another, you were outside the blocks. Um, but at the same time, um, they, they very much uh, conceived of it as a uh, a sort of a, a provocative, um, uh, a sort of provocative foreign policy doctrine. They spoke of it as being active; that it's it's not passive, uh, because the the and one it's one sort of school of thought that they're pushing back on on this issue is uh, particularly that it's not the only one. Perhaps the most important the Indian government's uh, policy, at least at that time, which was uh, more sort of more sort of. Um, Purely one of sort of not getting mixed up in the in the in the, in the sort of, of of the fray of the Cold War and sort of the the back and forth, a sort of in, in a sense a sort of sort of standing back and sort of having a sort of dignified, uh, 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 not getting embroiled in sort of international contentions and, and Cold War contentions. Um, and the, some of the, the smaller countries that are really in, in the driver's seat and the founding of the Malayan movement and sort of uh, advocating the policy at the time. Yugoslavia, Algeria is one of them, uh, Egypt is so Cuba is a good example. Cuba's relationship with alignment is, is interesting, of course, because it is a very close ally of the Soviet Union. But they're arguing that it, it should be, it means independence. You're not one of the blocks. You're not in the Soviet bloc or the American bloc, but you can have relations with both if you want and, and close relations, but also that you can sort of get embroiled in, in international affairs and international contentions and that you can sort of provoke things. And what I found, I mean, this is all very, this is behind closed doors. This is what people are saying to one another. So I, you know, and I have, you know, there's lots of conversations along these lines, sort of, uh, you know, Algerian political figures talking to sort of Malian political figures or Indonesian uh, uh, counterparts, Yugoslavian, uh, and they're um, Egyptian, and and they're sort of, uh, you know, in public, non-alignment is, you know, about promoting peace, um, ending the Cold War, ending the nuclear arms race, and so on. But in private, they're saying that they need to, it can be desirable to, in a sense, escalate the Cold War, to provoke tensions between the superpowers or between the superpowers and sort of secondary powers like Britain and France and communist China. And their argument is that um, this is how they can best maximize their influence and actually get positive beneficial attention from the great powers. The most It's not the only example, but the most obvious example, say, would be economic aid. And you can see people saying quite clearly 
Um, I'm trying to think of it. I think it, I think it's uh, uh, a senior Malian figure, for example, and they can say to um, their Indian counterparts that they're having friendly disagreements about this uh, uh, over because they are still. Um, I don't want to make it sound like they're sort of enemies, but they have a different perspective, and they can say, you know, you're a massive country, you know, you're India, hundreds of millions of people. The, the everyone is going to give you economic assistance. Everyone is going to sort of answer your calls. You're you just by the sh- your sheer size. Okay, fine. You're 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 poor at the moment, but you know people answer your calls. They want to give you economic assistance. They compete for your your attention and, and your favor and compete for influence uh, with you. Um, as I said, I think uh, the example I'm thinking of it was a, a, a Malian figure. Uh, quite explicitly saying, but you know, how do I get the Americans to care about my country? How do I get them to give me hundreds of millions of dollars of development assistance, or the Soviets for that matter? Um, we're just not big. We're not, you know, not sort of self-evidently important in the sort of international race for for influence and and, and favor and that kind of thing. The international competition, and, and so they uh, uh, saying this one another that you know it could be beneficial that non-alignment. Not publicly, but at least for many of the countries sort of leading the founding of the Nile movement uh, and so on, especially in the 60s, thing that could be useful to sort of stir a sense of competition between the great powers. Um, that you can give the example, you can give the impression that you're leaning towards one ideologically, that you're sort of you know starting to follow the Soviet model, and then maybe the Americans will get concerned enough to start giving you economic assistance to sort of you know steer you back away from uh, the Soviets and to sort of gain influence and ideological influence in your in this country uh, and so it's liberally provocative or at least in many cases is um, and it's also of course um, dangerous um, many as many uh, especially as you start to get into the sort of mid late 60s I mean how many sort of Coups and governments are there that are that are overthrown. Sometimes there might be sort of the direct intervention of, of the CIA, say, in, in various places. Other times it's maybe a bit more indirect, either the Soviets or the Americans or the British. That you know, I, it, it's it's a dangerous policy, sort of stoking cold, deliberately stoking great power tensions and cold war tensions around your uh, poor, developing post-colonial country. There can be benefits. Um, it's better than being ignored is the calculation, but of course the margin for error is very slim, and there's a lot of people that end up being overthrown, arrested, um, executed, uh, and so on because perhaps you sort of gamble wrong, and then the, somebody in in Washington D.C. says, uh, or somewhere else, but you know, often in Washington D.C. says, okay, let's get rid of these people and replace them with a government we like a lot more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's a it's a dangerous game, but um, uh, it, it's also sort of uh, a game that Algerians and others are are um, you know really embracing. And this, I mean, this this is like a, a really interesting facet to your book, um, just how the uh, the prospect for peace, um, you know, between the Soviet Union and the U.S. Um, actually did appear as a threat um, mm-hmm. to. Um, uh, sort of like the the Algerian state. And so for, this is kind of jumping ahead of the story, but um, in the 1970s with detente, there was a real fear among um, Algerian leaders and politicos that um, uh, you know that like the sort of like this, this a spheres of influence agreement um, between the Soviet Union and the U.S. would actually limit their ability to uh, get aid from uh, those countries. And then, moreover, President Benbala. 
um, regularly voiced concern about the hotline built between the Kremlin and D.C., the famous hotline um, you know, that, that was built after um, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so y- you do provide um, uh, really key evidence that um, uh, like the, the Cold War um, is not um, irrelevant um, to this story at all. Um, and it's actually something that uh, um, you know, people within Algeria were, um, in, in, in some cases, stoking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is the kind of thing that actually is a good example of what I feel the the Algerian archives and the Algerian sources really conveyed to me that I wouldn't have got if if, if I didn't have those uh, the the sort of the difference in perspectives, um, and uh, and you can see quite explicit conversations about this kind of thing about say détente and the reduction of Cold War tensions. You can see that um, as early as 1961, where uh, there's the, the term détente is starting to get bandied, bandied about because uh, Khrushchev is sort of making um, overtures uh, to Kennedy, and uh, they have uh, there's a there's a sort of um, you know there's a, there's a summit of some of the of the great powers in um, in Paris in 61, and this term détente is sort of getting bandied around, and things then sort of escalate again. But even then, um, uh, and this is something that I mention, a um, uh, specific sort of conversation along these lines that I mentioned in the book, it's the, um, the Indonesian uh, foreign minister, for example, he's talking to sort of like-minded uh, um, uh, people from the Algerian nationalist movement, um, the Egyptian government, uh, Yugoslav government, and so on. And they're quite explicitly saying that they don't like the idea of detente. It concerns them. and that this, you'll, you'll see this sort of discourse come back in much more strongly in the 1970s when detente sort of really happens, uh, um, at least for several years. Um, but from the from the from the get go, the early 60s, the concept that detente, the sort of reduction in Cold War tensions worries them, which I, is interesting because that's the opposite of what most of the sort of public discourse about post-colonial uh, uh, international affairs is about. It's that's not what the discourse at the Bangdan conference is about. It's not what the non-aligned movement sort of official proclamations say. They say they want the Cold War to end, reduction in tensions. But in practice, they say, well, this means that uh, without tensions, you know, who's going to care about us? Who's going to give us economic assistance? Who's going to kind of give us other forms of uh, of support? Um, and when you think about it and you go back and you see their reference points, it's it's striking how much um, well, I suppose, as we would expect, people um, who are um, um, living, com- coming of age and sort of becoming political figures in the late colonial and post-colonial period, for them, the, the Cold War is about imperialism. It's another facet of imperial imperial uh, competition. Uh, and that's something that, you know, in theory, we know that. And in theory, sort of you know, American foreign policymakers at the time uh, sort of knew that. The sort of knowing it and sort of really understanding what that means and appreciating what that means. And you realize that for them, for, for the sort of the colonial world or the, the third world, the global south, that for them, if you think about all the sort of great uh, sort of, uh, you know, the annals of big, great sort of peacemaking uh, diplomacy, for them, it's synonymous with the, the sort of non-European world or the sort of the non North or the non the non white world, I guess essentially that for them that means the non the, the non white world getting divvied up 
by the great power makers. You know, you, so you go back to the Berlin Conference uh, in Africa, for example, as a, sort of the most famous example. But the same thing happens in 1919 uh, at the Versailles Conference. Um, they are, you know, they feel that the sort of the same thing happens in uh, in 1945. And so for them, they feel like they taunt, oh yeah, the reduction tensions between East and West. Like we know what that means. The, the great the great powers make peace amongst one another by getting at the maps and giving up the world between them. That's how we became colonized in the first place. That's that's what peacemaking amongst the great powers means. Um, and so, it, it, I mean, and it's fascinating because it's just coming from this whole different sort of perspective from which, as would make total sense, that the sort of uh, uh, imperial um, sort of horse trading amongst the great powers is for them, the most important defining characteristic of some of these big conferences, the Versailles Conference and this kind of thing, uh, the Versailles Peace Conference, it's not some sort of relatively minor detail. Uh, for them, that's the, the defining characteristic. And so there's just a suspicion of uh, diplomacy, great power diplomacy, peacemaking, um, which I think, and it's one of the things that I think that the legacies of this diplomatic culture, political culture, the legacies of this sort of collective uh, historical memory uh, still applies um, today, uh, still evident today. Uh, and it's also a clear example of where there is um, one of the striking things about this sort of sense of, of anti-colonial internationalism, third world solidarity, is the great sense of commonality that they feel. And it's striking that it's, it's, it's a, there's so many things that, you know, what does sort of Algeria and Indonesia have in common? In many respects, not a lot. They're very different places. Um, but or you could pick any two countries really from from uh, almost from uh, uh, the Southern hemisphere in this era, but they feel this strong sense of commonality because they find that there's many things straight away when they start having first conversations that they do agree about. And one of them is this sort of shared historical memory, the sort of the sense of global history from the colonized um, perspective. And that uh, there's this sort, your sort of default mode. What the, if people talk about the Versailles Peace Conference, what that means to you and sort of if people talk about uh, you know, the prospect of detente. Um, there's many examples, but that's one of the clear thing, that's uh, one clear example of they soon realize like, oh yeah, we see that the same way. Um, and so despite all the, you know, infinite differences between the the different places in the, in, in the decolonizing and post-colonial world, um, uh, that there's a lot of, um, if not universally, but extremely widely uh, shared uh, perspectives and attitudes on a range of issues. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think um, what, like what this really shows is that like real politic was something that was practiced even amongst uh, you know revolutionaries. Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, nobody has to be more pragmatic than the weak. Exactly. Yeah, that's well put. Uh, one of my challenges. Um, not sure exactly how well I succeeded, but one of my challenges was to convey, you know, if, if you're sort of writing about international affairs or sort of you know, foreign policy or diplomacy for any country, there's, you know, that sort of debate of real politics versus ideology and so on and so forth. And one of my challenges was to, there's not a clear roadmap if you're talking about Algeria from that perspective, there's not sort of a huge literature to sort of position yourself against. And I wanted to convey that, you know, both are true at once, which I think is probably the case for, for just about anywhere, that people have ideologies, both conscious and unconscious. And in the Algerian case, uh, you know, uh, politically influential people generally had a pretty 
I mean, they had unconscious ideologies as well, but certainly also had very sort of conscious uh, ideologies and ideological differences amongst them. But they were also very thought of themselves as being very pragmatic, um, had to be pragmatic. Um, and so the interaction between the two, um, uh, I found very interesting. And of, often they were quite frank um, amongst themselves and to others about where they're sort of um, sacrificing their principles, uh, at least in the short term, for um, expedient reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so just just moving ahead a little bit, another uh, thing about your book that um, just re- really um, s- struck me was the um, the discussion about how um, uh, Algerian um, anti-colonialism and uh, decolonization and state making, um, how that related to the interstate system itself. Um, you have um, a, a really interesting and perhaps um, counterintuitive um, argument, which is that, like, you know, even though the, um, you know, even though Algeria was like a product of transnationalism and it embraced all these, um, you know, transnational connections, um, when you actually, um, you know, uh, take a look at it retrospectively, you can see how the um, uh, the, the Algerian case um, actually helped entrench the um, the interstate system and maybe um, you know like this, the same can go for other post-colonial regimes like the, these these revolutionaries ended up becoming um, uh, quite conservative in their dealings with state and sovereignty mm. yeah I, I do try to grapple with what I think of as um, the conservatism of decolonization there's many radical, revolutionary aspects of decolonization, speaking in uh, uh, big, uh, broad, uh, broad brush terms. But there's, there's also um, some quite conservative uh, aspects of uh, decolonization. And I think that's um, uh, true in, in, with respect to um, uh, sort of international relations theories. As a sort of theory of international relations, international relations, uh, third worldism, if we'll, if we'll call it that, sort of anti-colonial internationalism, is is a, a kind of a conservative traditionalist sort of theory of of international relations. It's very state-based, nation-based, state-centric, nation-centric. Um, it puts um, and the things I'm saying, I think, are very true of the Algerian case. I think they're you know, perhaps not universally true, but are, are, are um, sort of on the whole, uh, um, in the aggregate, largely true of uh, sort of the third worldism in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, it's so it's, you know, it, it conceives of a world that's um, is large, that is composed of nations and states and, and nation states. So it's kind of traditionalist in, in that sense. It puts very great emphasis on interstate relations. Um, in part because interstate relations then um, themselves sort of validate those states. One of the most important aspects of post-colonial diplomacy is that it is interstate and it's sort of just a, it's just a sort of constant reinforcement of the reality and the existence of the nation state, that it's engaged in uh, this stuff. That's why there's a very, uh, the Algerians are good examples of this, how there's a very great emphasis on the sort of, um, pageantry and um, uh, sort of protocols and, and ritualism of diplomacy um, to the point that there's 
um, you know, you'll find some, especially people sort of coming from uh, uh, sort of Western European countries or sort of U.S. figures sometimes might be complaining about how much sticklers for protocols Stickers for protocol, say the Algerians are, and I, I certainly see them complaining that about in the Algerian context. In fact, even still up until the present day, uh, I've uh, had the uh, opportunity to converse with, um, and this instance, sort of American diplomats uh, uh, working the Algerians complaining about how they're stickers for for sort of protocol. And so there's this kind of conservatism to it because it, it all the because of course what they the, the greatest success of the Algerian revolution, the greatest success of sort of most uh, sort of Third worldist uh, anti-colonial revolution movements along those lines is their, their greatest success in a sense is one that they can't directly call attention to, which is to establish them gaining independence. Sure, of course, and they they do talk about that, but convincing you and convincing Algerians that Algeria is a thing, that the Algerian nation is this self-evident truth. Uh, and if you accept that argument, then it becomes very difficult for you, even in 1960, 1961, to argue that, that Algeria should not be independent if you recognize it as a nation. It's why the French argue very strongly that Algeria is not a nation, because they don't want to be arguing that nations should not have their independence. Um, and so it's not, and I don't mean to, and, and this is for, you know, the, much of the post-colonial world, not all of it, in fact, any country in the world really, but the, the nation is not a self-evident reality, but especially in, in those contexts. Um, and so diplomacy and the sort of formality of, the, of diplomacy and sort of statism and these kind of things, it's, it's kind of traditionalist in the sense, and, and they're sort of, because all of those things just reinforce the, the sense that... Um, yeah, this this is a nation that this nation and its state exist. If we didn't exist, then why the heck do we have diplomats who are sort of you know giving speeches and standing in front of flags uh, and this kind of thing? Um, uh, and of course, it's about convincing Algerians as much as it is convincing sort of Americans and French and Soviets uh, and so on. Um, it has, sort of has a double audience. Um, uh, so yeah, the the so of course. Um, but there is a, I mean, the conservatism of decolonization has many aspects. Of course, we could get into uh, sort of cultural conservatism and these kind of things, these things that become very pressing concerns in, in um, post-colonial politics in Algeria and many other places, uh, dynamics that are still being played out uh, in many parts of the world today. Um, but, you know, sort of speaking uh, to give the country examples, I think it, it's manifested in this sort of uh, in political concepts, political formulations, they're fighting for a nation state. They're deliberately presenting themselves to the international community, the great powers, in a sense, arguing that, you know, if, if, if as is true in so many of these sort of um, counterinsurgency and sort of counter-revolutionary contexts, the French are, you know, their public position is that Algeria is not a country. These, the FLN, they're just bandits and killers and murderers and thugs. Uh, whereas the Algerians will be going to say, especially to perhaps more skeptical audiences or audiences that have, for various reasons, are, you know, inclined to support the, the French position, the Americans in particular, saying, well, we're not radical at all. We're just nationalists. We're patriots. We just want an independent country. Um, they go to great pains to, um, you know, this. the power dynamics, of course, at play are, are, are very interesting because, of course, they'll, you know, the sticklers for protocol, 
Um, they'll always be sort of wearing suits and sort of dressing conservatively and this kind of thing because they're conveying, in a sense, a sort of conservatism. They're like, you know, the French are, don't listen to the French. They said we're a bunch of killers and thugs and sort of uh, Islamic fundamentalists and this kind of thing. We actually couldn't be any more boring. You know, we're just fighting. We're, we're just fighting for our independence. And of course, that's <laughs> presenting yourself to a certain audience. Um, but and I mean, but it also makes sense. This you know mm -hmm. experience of the war of independence, and even after independence, um, when you know they're pushing together a, a state, pushing together a foreign ministry, as so many post-colonial countries, they don't have a lot of resources. They're pretty broke. They don't have a lot of resources in terms of necessarily trained personnel and administrative personnel and this kind of thing. And so. But they also don't want to look like the poor cousins in diplomatic circles. So they're, they're you know, the, the sort of they make a particular point of sort of conducting themselves with a dignified bearing and being sort of uh, uh, sticking to the formulae of and the protocols and so on, so that no one could, so no no one can not take you seriously as a, as a diplomat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, like, so you just you provide um, an abundance of evidence uh, um, to support this. Like w one of them, uh, um, and I thought this was uh, so, so fascinating, was just how they, um, you know, they they, they joined um, organizations like the UN, um, uh, which you know, like which represented the interstate system, um, you know, par excellence. Mm. They would. Um, like create new agencies within the UN, like um, the UN Conference um, on uh, Trade and Development. Um, but like they were participating in this um, uh, club um, that only sovereign states could be a part of. Um, and then this becomes even clearer in the 1970s, um, uh, which is really fascinating because like um, the historiography has really um, uh, been thinking about this in terms of almost like the golden age of third worldism. Um, but uh, I mean, just like an example at the, the 1970 non-aligned movement summit in Zambia, um, you, you show how the discussions were all about, um, uh, you know, the reinforcement of state sovereignty and state authority. So conversations about, um, you know, like tariffs and borders and things like that. Um, and so um, it, it really does become clear that um, like this post-colonial world is um, uh, it, it really does look like kind of like the, the, the in, in many ways, the old interstate system with new members yeah yeah and and i would um yeah i would argue that 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 is the case the dash this is why decolonization ends up looking the way it does which isn't um not the only scholar to point this out certainly um uh, frederick cooper in particular uh, sort of made this mm -hmm. case looking at, at west africa but um it's not self-evident that decolonization means the whole world turning into independent sovereign states that in many at least the sort of in abstract theoretical terms are sort of are are identical and they have foreign ministries and they have a delegation at the UN and a flag flying at the UN and and this kind of thing um and it's a remarkable remarkable in in sort of abstract structural terms in terms of the structures of international relations it's a remarkable homogenization of of the world if you look at the imperial era if you look at the imperial order I mean, it's actually total, um, you know, it's total mess in, in structural terms. I mean, if you were just looking at the British Empire, as, you know, people point out, let alone even comparing it. So you have huge swaths of the world and in Africa, Asia in particular, that are part of this British Empire thing. Uh, but what they mean, they have all these territories with sort of different uh, legal status and sort of different terminologies and um 
you know, if you look at India, there's sort of these sort of independent states within it, and they have different statuses, even apart from different colonial territories. The French Empire, perhaps they make a bit of an effort to, at least sort of in, in, in the blueprints, uh, to, to maybe homogenize things a bit more. But I would argue that, you know, the sort of, and I know where people are coming from, uh, I mean, in a sense, both can be true at the same time, but the narrative that the world is sort of becoming more complex and states are becoming less important and everything, that this is what's happening in the late 20th century, I think is bizarre in the sense that um, in reality, the, it seems to be that in terms of the, the formal structures of how, which have power, um, the formal structures of, of international affairs become very codified and um, uh, made much more uniform and homogenized uh, in the sort of mid, late 20th century. Um, that you get all of these, obviously what happens within the states varies massively, but at least on paper in terms of how international affairs works, the sovereign states are um, have certain basic uh, traits in common which is not at all what most of the world looks like until sort of 1945 or so, which is not to say the, the UN is, um, represents a big change to international affairs. Um, uh, and I don't deny that. And there's a, there's a revolutionary aspect to that. But the post-colonial countries, the third world countries, argue, are amongst those arguing extremely forcefully in these conversations, very much uh, applying uh, in, uh, current events today, uh, that the UN is a club of states. It's a club for states. So in that sense, it very much reinforces um, national sovereignty and state sovereignty because it creates this exclusive club that only states can belong to. Um, and the same can be thought can be said of a lot of the other key um, institutions of, of the uh, international order, IMF, World Bank, and so on. You know, they don't deal with guerrilla movements or they don't deal with, <laughs> yeah. you know, they don't, the, the World Bank doesn't issue loans to a caliphate. No, the World Bank <laughs> issue loans to a sovereign state. So there's this sort of, you know, these institutions, these, these things have power, um, which is why even though you'll have sort of avowedly socialist countries such as Algeria that are publicly and privately skeptical of the World Bank and the IMF and see them as sort of tools for American uh, economic imperialism, but at the same time, they desperately want membership of them um, and fight for it, not just because you can get loans, but also because it's one more confirmation that if these, the clubs first, they want to be in the big global clubs for states. That means nobody can deny your nationality. Nobody can deny your sort of validity of your, of your nation state. Um, um, yeah, so then the, these debates about how the, the all of these new institutions for international affairs are being very forcefully that these institutions should be things that enhance the primacy um, uh, and, and the sort of moral and political uh, monopolies of sovereign states, not detract from them. So that's certainly the case for the UN and sort of it's sort of human rights debates is where this plays out really dramatically over the past couple of decades also peacekeeping, this kind of thing. But uh, if you see, say, the, the founding of the Organization of African Unity, uh, precursor to the African Union today in 63, so they're having these debates themselves when post-colonial countries get to create their own institutions. And so the OAU is a very good example where they, they have this conversation quite explicitly. They say, the OAU is a club for states and we're not going to create something that will 
be seen as a moral or political rival for power uh, to the the sovereign, uh, the, the, the constituent nation states. So they make a point of saying that the that the, um, the the sort of the secretary general of the OAU is not that they make a point of sort of watering down its the powers of that position. So that there's nothing that will either symbolically, morally, or in basic sort of political prag pragmatic politics challenge the the, the primacy of of states. Great. I think that's a, a wonderful place to um, sort of leave the discussion of the book. <clears throat> Great. Um, and I've already taken up a lot of your time already today. Um, but no, 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 would... it's been a pleasure. Okay, great. Well, I, I would love to know what you're working on right now. Well, I'm working on the next book. Uh, a couple of sh uh, shorter uh, writing uh, projects. I actually have a, uh, just got an email that I have um, uh, a piece in a roundtable on decolonization, um, what it means for the Middle East that's uh, coming out in the... Journal of Middle East Studies in the next, um, I think, in the next few weeks, and um, the the book I'm working on right now is the rise and fall of anti-colonial internationalism. So um, some of the same themes I've been talking about, which is perhaps why, um, uh, uh, and some of the the comments I've been making, I've I've been talking about more recent events uh, because these are some of the things that are uh, in my mind in my my book. The book I'm currently working on is. Um, chronologically moving up to the sort of the end of the 20th century. Um, so, uh, you know, stay tuned for that. Uh, we, we will. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited for that project. Um, so uh, again, Jeff, I really want to thank you for coming onto the program. Thanks. Thanks very much, Zach. I appreciate this. Yeah, it, it was a lot of fun. Um, my former advisor, also uh, the person that I uh, also TA'd for, um, <laughs> it's good to, 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 to be speaking with you. Uh, and you've been listening to New Books in History. I've been speaking with Jeff Byrne about his book, Mecca of Revolution, Algeria, Decolonization, and the Third World Order. Mm -hmm.